You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him down to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him anything about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, have you, uh, have you ever been let down in life? Sort of a bummer of a way to start a sermon, I'm sorry. But you ever been let down? I have been. I've been let down in, in small ways of people who just um, missed an appointment or, or uh, showed up late or, you know, little things like that to... Um, bigger disappointment, like my, my dad left when I was in high school, and you feel let down, you feel abandoned, things like that. Sometimes um, that happens when people let us down. Sometimes um, circumstances let us down as well, from you know, big to small. You go to, the, go to the baseball game, and you get there, and then the clouds gather, and the game gets rained out, and you just feel, uh, you just feel let down by that. Not the end of the world. Or you can get let down by circumstances like um, COVID for the last couple of years has really changed things, and we've had some expectations, and they've been now busted expectations. And so our tendency when we, uh, when we think about how other things and other people let me down is go, fine, I'll just trust myself. But there's a problem with that as well. You ever let yourself down? I do it all the time where I've left maybe uh, an interaction with somebody and thought, man, I, I just I wish I'd handled that better. 
gosh, look at my schedule. I've overcommitted. How did I get here? Why didn't I save enough money for retirement? Like we can look and just go, I, I was in control and I let myself down. And so what happens is we just have these people circumstances and, and then also ourselves that can just let us down in big ways and small ways. And so the problem is the result of a life of letdowns is that we develop something I call guarded trust. I'm, I'm not going to fully trust because I'm kind of preparing my heart a little bit to get, to get dinged a little bit. I'm, I'm preparing it to be let down as well. And we do this. So you get disappointed by um, certain sports teams year after year after year. I have a couple in mind. And, uh, and so you just start to get disappointed. And so you just can't be as big of a fan because they're just going to let you down. And so you can't enter even the new season with new expectations. You just got to drop your expectations a little bit. Or some artist that um, you really, really like, and oh, they've got a new album out, and then, but there's some preaching on the album that is not what you would want preached into the world, and there's going to be a lot of influence from that. And so you go, Ugh. so the next one comes out, it's just not as big a deal. So we, we guard ourselves, or honestly, some people have had people in the church let them down. And so we can go into church even and just have low expectations, and just have this guarded trust. This happens so many places in our lives because we live in this sinful, fallen, broken world. I promise this picks up in a little bit. We live in this broken, sinful, fallen world. And so as a result, we go, I'm just gonna be let down. And so, um, and so the danger in all this is this, that if we have all this guarded trust with all these other places, well, why not with God? Sometimes it just translates to that, that we just go, well, everybody else lets me down. This is how I have learned. This is the muscle I'm exercising about how I trust. And so since that's how I trust, why don't I just turn and do that with God as well? And the bad news is this, like this happens so regularly. And if our faith with God, our trust with God is the same that it is with other people, that it's sort of guarded. And then I look at what biblical faith is, which means we're surrendered in trust to him, then we have one of two things. At best case scenario, it's you may have faith and it's just growing. And so we need to learn what that looks like. But at worst, it could be we don't even understand what faith is. And maybe we don't have any faith at all. Because the faith God calls us to is not this guarded trust. It is surrendered before him. And so today we're going to just figure out, is it faith that needs to grow? Is it no faith at all? And then how do we actually do that? And here's the very simple statement to remember, is that God is trustworthy in every circumstance. That God is trustworthy in every circumstance. So I'll show this to you today here. You heard it read. There's been some real waves in Christ's ministry. He's already had some ups and downs, and he just had the transfiguration. If you weren't here last week or didn't catch it online, they went up a mountain, Peter, James, John went up there, and there's Jesus. God speaks in a cloud. Elijah and uh, Moses show up, and they have this conversation. And then Peter goes, hey, let's build a tent here, kind of put you three on the same level. Let's stay up here on this mountaintop. And, and I, I feel like that would be another time that I'd be like, Peter, you should just not talk. You should just stop. And Jesus is like, yeah, no. And then he heads back down. And so imagine going from that experience, the other nine are down there, and it says that that's what's happening. It says on the next day in verse 37, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Mark's gospel says that there were scribes there and they were um, arguing with the disciples. Scribes are experts in the Jewish law, arguing with the disciples. It says in verse 38, 
And behold, a man from the crowd cried out. Um, In Matthew's gospel, it says he cried out from his knees in front of Jesus, begging Jesus something. Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. Then only Luke mentions this, for he is my only child. Verse 39 says, and behold, a spirit, later it's called a demon, so this is a demonic spirit, seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. Now, um, there's a translation of one of the words that says he has epilepsy or an epileptic seizure, or sometimes it just says seizure, or now it usually is translated that he convulses, and that was very scary back in that day, especially they didn't know what to do about it. Um, But the point here is not what disease did he have, it's that it's not just a medical issue that he's having. It's that there's a spiritual issue happening as well. There's, a, there's this um, a demon, so to speak, this evil spirit, and this is how it's manifesting itself in this boy. And here's what he says. He says, I begged your disciples, probably the other nine that were already down the hill, to cast it out, but they could not. So here's Jesus' answer. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, Or it could be translated, unbelieving and perverse generation. Probably speaking to the other disciples. Because they're supposed to have faith, they're supposed to be able to do this, and they still were not able to. And he says, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? So do you catch what's happening? That they just went from a literal mountaintop experience. Moses, Elijah, God speaks. Peter, James, John, Jesus are all there. Peter says, great, we should just hang here. And Jesus goes, no, life's happening down there. And so they go from the mountain down to the valley. Now, feel free to check me on this, but here's what I did. I started looking at the rest of Luke's gospel. And this this to me feels like a major turning point where if you're a follower of Jesus in that day and everything that happens, your life goes like this. It is up and down and up and down and up and down. They just went from a literal mountaintop to this valley below where there's a demon-possessed boy. Right after this, Jesus says, uh, and then, oh, and then he heals the boy, by the way, not to give away the ending, but you heard it read. Then he heals the boy, so that's another big peak. And then right after it, as he's walking off, you heard it read that he says he's gonna be handed over to men to be killed. Whew, back in a valley. And then the disciples start arguing, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Well, they get it. Okay, he's a king. Like they're, they, they want something for themselves, but they understand he's got a kingdom, and he's a king with a kingdom. And then what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. He goes to a Samaritan village to preach and to reach people. The Samaritans were people. They hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And here goes Jesus to say, we're going to them to preach to the, good, the good news to them. What a glorious moment. Except the Samaritan village rejects Jesus. So he's got, his disciples are growing though. That's great news. He sends out 72. They come back and they start going, even the demons are subject to us in your name. That's great. And then right after that, he turns to the Pharisees and the scribes and he has to rebuke them and he has to say, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And then he turned and they're going, oh man, he just rebuked those guys. And then he has to turn and say, by the way, don't fear them. Whoop, back, okay, we don't need to fear them. I mean, are you seeing just the, the emotions and the range and the up? And the down, and then in the same sermon later, he says, <coughs> excuse me, he says, um, don't worry about anything. And then in the same sermon, he says, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. 
Then you've got Palm Sunday, where the people cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save us, or save us, we pray, or save us, please. They're crying that out as he's coming into the city. And then those voices a little while later said, crucify him. And then if you watch the trial with Pilate, you see the ups and downs that Pilate says some stuff and Jesus is just kind of standing there like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, like I'm gonna go to the cross, so go ahead and do your thing. And every so often he throws something in and you're like, yeah, get him, Jesus. You're like, yeah, Jesus is gonna win. And then all of a sudden, he goes to the cross. And then three days later, he rises from the grave. I think this is a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. And, And truly, almost every single commentator that I read, every single scholar that I read, was noting that the, 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 um, the contrast between the mountains and the valleys. The, uh, the painter uh, Raphael actually did this. His final painting, as I understand it, Wikipedia told me, was uh, called the Transfiguration. It's called the Transfiguration. And it's, it's a contrast. If you can see this, it's hard because it's up and down, but um, it's, uh, it's called the Transfiguration. And it tries to capture this because at top, what do you see? You see, the, you see the glorious light. You see that's the Mount of Transfiguration. And then what he tried to capture is um, what was happening down below as well and see how it's darker and there's, there's accusations and they're pointing and people are pleading and people are crying out. And so you've got this glorious image of worship and light on the mountain. And then you see down at the bottom, you see this spiritual torment that's happening. And so if you're a follower of Jesus in this time, you are following him and you are going mountains, valleys, mountains, valleys, mountains, valleys. And if you're a follower of Jesus in 2022, I'm gonna guess that your life is a lot of mountains and valleys and mountains and valleys and mountains and valleys. And so I come back to that God is trustworthy in every circumstance. God is trustworthy in every circumstance. Here's what we're gonna do. This text is actually about trust. It is about faith. Um, This shows up in Matthew and Mark's gospel as well. And in Mark's gospel, um, Jesus asked him, how long has this been happening to him, to this little boy? Uh, And then he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. The father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me grow my trust in you. Help me grow my faith in you. And so we need to talk about this this morning because we walk through the mountains and valleys and the answer is how can we have faith? How can we trust God in the midst of those how do we have faith despite our circumstances? It's interesting. Let's talk, to mount, let's talk to the mountaintop first. When you've got that mountaintop experience, it's kind of funny to think, well, how could you possibly lose faith if you're on the mountaintop? Everything is going great. Everything's going so well. How could you lose faith? Why do you need to grow your faith when things are going real well? Why aren't you just worshiping and praising and thanking God for what he's done? And the reality is, oftentimes we get to the mountaintop. Maybe we've had God as my means to an end to get me these things I want. And so we get there and we go, I'm good. I got it. And something in us, doesn't innately go, I need God, because I've got stuff. I have to say, I've exper- I'm experiencing this, so yes, I'm 47 today. Thanks, Paul. And um, the, the choir sang today. It was a lovely rendition of Happy Birthday. Thank you. Um, 
Uh, and uh, I came here, so I was here when I was, I was 40 when I came here. I got called the whippersnapper multiple times when I came here. That was fun. So I'm this 40-year-old guy coming here to preach and be a lead pastor. And I remember like people interviewing and asking questions, basically going like, can you do this? And I remember being kind of like looking cool on the outside, but being like, yes, like I think. And we were going through this whole process. And I got to tell you, there was something in me, and there's, there still is, that when I get up to say, here's what the word of God says for us, now even at 47, I still feel like there's people here that have walked with the Lord longer than I've been alive. It's strange still for me to stand up and have people look at me and go, let me explain to you what God has for you today. Like it's still sort of, it's sort of you know, mind-blowing a little bit to me. I intrinsically feel I need God. So I pray like crazy. Problem is, Lord willing, what if I get to retire here? What if it's 10, 15 years, now I'm 60, I've been doing this for 15, 20 years. I pray that I'm still a person that says, I still need God. But you probably know this because you feel this. Like if you get stuff, if, if you get skills, if you kind of get in a rhythm, maybe at your job or in, in your marriage or in whatever it is, all of a sudden we have all this stuff and so it can be easy to just go, I can sort of do this without him. It's a dangerous spot to be. The mountaintop can be deceptively fulfilling. And here's what I mean by that. Because it's pretty darn temporary. And everybody knows this, that we look at something, we're always looking at the next rung and wanting it. If I just get to that mountaintop, then I'll be good. Go read the book of Ecclesiastes sometime about a guy who goes, I'm going to get more, uh, more women, more pleasure, more money, more, uh, more fame, more fortune, more anything in the whole world you can imagine. He builds, like we build nice homes. He's building castles. Like you got a little garden. He's got like vineyards, multiple vineyards. He's got more wisdom. He's got everything. And he says, under the sun, meaning apart from God, he says, meaningless, 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 meaningless. He says, it's like chasing the wind, which is one of my favorite illustrations in the Bible that you go to capture something and then you go, oh, that's not, oh that didn't do anything for me. And you're going and you're grabbing it. And it's like gra- trying to grab the wind. Good luck with that. Or one way to think of it is if you've got whatever normal looks like, then you've got the mountains and you've got the valleys. We've got our normal life and everything's fine. And then we get to the mountain, and if we stay there too long, what happens? Well, whatever's up here now just becomes normal. I need to keep this now. That's Peter going, let's build some tents and let's stay up here. Now I need to keep this. And so what used to be totally normal and you had been perfectly content with, now all of a sudden is a valley. The mountaintop is not as fulfilling as we think if it's about acquiring our stuff. And so let me just say, the mountaintop people, when we're there, what do we do? How do we fix it? And it's very simple that we have actual gratitude for undeserved blessings. Actual gratitude for undeserved blessings. I say actual gratitude because if you're like me, you're good at lip service of being able to say, I'm so thankful. PTL, you know, thank you, thank you, Lord, for this, such a blessing of his. But it's not really in my heart, it's just in my words. The way to be up there and to look and to really savor it is to go, thank you, God, I'm genuinely deep within me grateful for these things, for undeserved blessings, to go, I don't deserve this. This is the grace of God. When we talk about grace, it is unmerited, unearned favor of God. When we're on the mountaintop to say, I am, gr- I am genuinely deep down grateful. 
for these things that I don't deserve. More on that in a moment, but let me talk to Valley people for just a minute. And I have to just confess, because there's some people that's in hypothetical. It's feeling like that right now. Um, permit me to be a little direct here. Um, I really don't want to. I want to just go sit and listen and check in with you, but let me just say a couple things. It's a healthy exercise to try and figure out why am I, why am I here? Why am I down right now? It might be the result of our fallen world. Maybe you just got a medical diagnosis for you or a loved one or something like that, or a fallen person did something to you. I had a, my boss said that he was going to, you know, he was going to be real uh, loyal to me, and then he just bolted. Maybe as a you know, uh, my ex did something to you. Were, you were hurt by somebody else. Maybe it's you're there because of your own fallenness, decisions we've made, and so now we're paying a consequence. I remember being really unfriendly to a group of people when I was in probably high school, and then I remember feeling lonely, and I thought, how dare they? And then I finally had to go, oh, wait a minute. I wouldn't want to be friends with me either. So I'm sitting here going, I feel lonely. And it was partly because, at least part, because of what I was doing. Or maybe if you were on a mountaintop and you lost sight of God, the valley is the thing that God uses to bring you back to him. So two quick thoughts I want to give to people in the valley. First and foremost, I want to say this. Don't fight the wrong enemy. Don't fight the wrong enemy. God is not the enemy. I understand that when we're down and if we want justice, if we want some kind of resolution and maybe it's something you're not gonna get, the person that hurts you is not around anymore, it's, it's just the fallen world and you need something and someone to blame, it's easy to just say God somehow did this or he allowed it, which in our minds can just feel like almost the exact same thing. Don't blame God. There's a God who is with you and adores you even in the midst of that. I, I heard this probably when I was, I bet I was in middle school, and I still remember it. One thing I want to tell you is the, the methods that we use a lot, like um, sex, alcohol, drugs are the big three, to feel better when we're in the valley, don't work. They don't work. Valley, norm, or excuse me, peak, norm, valley. When we're feeling in the valley, often what happens is people will do one of those three things to try and up their game a little bit, and maybe they'll even feel a little better than normal. This is the thing that some guy came to my middle school and told me I never forgot. And then what happens is when you come off that high, you crash, and you were right here. Well, now you come down to here. And then you go, oh, man, I need to feel better again. And so you do it, and it's not quite as much of a high as the first time. It's a little bit less and you crash even lower. And so eventually it just keeps getting lower and lower and lower. And eventually it's doing one of those things just to feel normal. There's a God who loves you and a God who's with you. Please don't turn from God, turn to God because the second thing I wanna say is God wants to pull you out. And the way he does it is he generally, generally, sends his people to do that. So even if you're not in the valley, listen up, because this is our job as people in the body of Christ to say, how can we pull people out? We went, <coughs> excuse me, we were yesterday, we were at a, my, my son's track meet, which in case you're wondering, track meets in middle school last about six hours. Learned that yesterday. Um, but it was still awesome for your kid to run for about three minutes, but it was still great. It was still worth it. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Um, but the hardest, I think, the hardest race to run is the four by 400 relay. 
which you got the baton. Um, one guy takes it and runs around the, the track once, takes a minute, minute and a half. Next, and then you got to hand the baton, next guy runs. Um, that was one of the last events that happened. It's hard because like a, like a 100 sprint, you just sprint and it's short and so everybody's sprinting. A 200, that's about the same. An 800, which is twice around, you kind of hit a pace. The 400 is short enough that you got to keep up a really good pace, but it's also really long. And so you would see these kids that were running before they hand the baton, the last straightaway, I mean... I mean, you should have seen their, like, they just looked so incredibly miserable running the last hundred. That's where all the parents are. So, we know, we would do that as they're running along. And, um, and so we, we watched this, and the first team, which might have been Faith Christian, might have been my son on the team, no big deal, finished in five minutes flat. They went around all four, five minutes flat. They won. And so they won, and then there was a decent little break, and then the next three teams finished kind of second, third, fourth, pretty quick. There was a break, but then they finished pretty quick. And then I looked, and I thought, I feel like there were five teams. And we're looking around, and I realized that there was this one team, and the two, the third and fourth legs, we think they were twins. These boys came up to maybe my hip. They were so tiny and had tiny little strides. And they were probably sixth graders, you know, like boys at that age. Like, you can really tell the difference. And they were, the, they were the third and fourth leg. And we're watching going, everybody else is done. I thought there was another team. And you looked, and that the last place team had a guy that had just taken the baton and was maybe halfway around. And so he's running the most miserable event six hours into the day. And he's having to come all the way around. And it means nothing. They have lost by a mile. Literally, I looked over, some kids that had been running had pulled out sandwiches and were sitting there eating, and this poor kid is still running. And he was way over on the other side, and I was there with Nikki, and we were like, oh, I feel so bad for that little boy, you know, running this thing, and he rounds, and he's got the last hundred to do, and you can just see him just hurting and coming around. And then the most amazing thing happened. All the parents saw that this kid was hurting. And this roar started from the parents. And then, we were no lie, we were getting teary watching this. These boys, the other boys that had just run the race on his team, ran over inside the track next to him and started going, come on, you can do it, and ran the last hundred on the grass alongside him with him. It just reminded me of the body of Christ and what we do when people are hurting. So if you're in the valley right now, don't get comfortable. God doesn't want to leave you there. And the remedy, I would say also, and I'm going to, I hope you hear this how I mean it, is also to have actual gratitude for undeserved blessings. When you're in a valley, the one thing that put you there can be the dominant thought that guides every thought that you have. And instead, if there's just a way, even just a smidge to just say, this is really hard, but I am grateful for this. In both instances, we have to learn trust and in increasing our trust. And really, gratitude is the way to do it. In fact, I've said it like this, that faith is proportional to gratitude. Generally speaking, faith is proportional to gratitude. If we're grateful to God for what he's done, then we trust him and we trust him and we trust him. 
And if we can develop gratitude, if we develop grateful hearts within us, then our faith starts to increase. And one big issue is in the midst of all this, in the highs and lows, sometimes we have what I call a misplaced prize or a misplaced treasure. Because the end result at the end of the day is not that you have a good family or good health or anything like that. The real treasure, the real prize is God himself. I cut the scripture short. Let me fill in the blank now. I begged the disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And what does Jesus say? Bring your son here. What's the answer on the mountaintop? Go to him. What's the answer in the valley? Go to him. Jesus healed him. The Bible says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The prize is not stuff. The prize is not money. The prize is not all that. The prize, the ultimate prize is God himself. Can you imagine being in a relationship with somebody just for the benefits that they bring you? You should be able to do that because that's our world today. Get in a relationship, and then as long as they're helpful to you, then keep them, and if not, just kind of kick them out. Don't, don't really commit. That's our world today. Imagine if um, Nikki, I'm proposing to Nikki, and I'm about to put the ring on her finger, and she goes, yeah, wait a minute. Why is it that you want to marry me? And I go, because I hear there's really great tax benefits, and then I put the ring on her finger. <laughs> I'm going to save some money. Kids, I'm so glad that I have you. Why, Dad? Why are you so glad? Well, you fill a void in my soul. You do something for me. That's not our relationship with God. It's not what it's supposed to be. God, you just do more things for me because the reality is he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die. That is more than you and I ever deserve. Our faith is proportional to our gratitude. Um, One of the things we're supposed to see from this lesson, from this text, Remember the detail that only Luke gave, that the dad brings his, what, his only son. That he's on his knees begging and crying out and saying, would you please save him? We're supposed to feel the weight of that because here is a man that might lose his only son. Do you know the pain of losing your only child? And we're supposed to go, oh my gosh, what is Jesus going to do? And I feel like Jesus should just go, I actually, I know someone who knows what it's like to lose their only son. My father has known from the beginning of time that his only son was going to come to earth and he was going to live a perfect life and go to the cross and he was going to die. So yes, my heavenly father knows the pain of losing their only son. And why in the world would he do it? Love. Love. Why would God the father go through that? Love. Our faith is proportional to our gratitude. The prize is him, and he always gives us himself. 